I'm Evans Maragis, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera. My guest on this occasion is Henry Venanzi, long-serving and brilliant chorus master for Cincinnati Opera. We'll spend time talking about how he came to opera, his wonderful mentor at CCM, Italo Taio, some of the hilarities and joys of being a chorus master, perhaps the longest-serving chorus master in American opera. My guest today is Henry Venanzi, longtime chorus master of Cincinnati Opera. Henry, I'm going to ask you to rack your brain and try and remember maybe what is your first recollection of Cincinnati Opera, period. I think uh, that the thing I remember most, because it was quite an auspicious thing, was that I did Roberto Devereux and Beverly Sills was here singing. So as a young student, that made quite an impression on me to see her and work with her and actually sort of uh, introduced me to what it was to be an opera singer. And because she was not only a tremendous talent, but also a tremendous person. So very fond memory. What was she like? Um, She was very down to earth. She was very cheerful. She was joking with everyone, whether it was a conductor or a fellow singer or a chorus member or a crew member. She had something nice to say to everybody and was, was very personable. She was a real what they call a mensch, I yes. guess. An all-American diva, for yes, sure. Yes, exactly. So what brought you to Cincinnati in the first place? Um, I came to Cincinnati um, to go to the conservatory, um, and I was majoring in uh, piano and uh, theory, if you can believe that, music theory. I used to be actually quite intelligent at one point. But um, I soon decided that what I really liked to do was make music with others in an ensemble capacity and uh, sort of was at the conservatory for a while exploring different things. And in your days at CCM, the opera program was still relatively new, if I remember right. And its great guru was the wonderful Italian bass Italo Taio. Yes, he's responsible for, for my career, I would say. He, he was the one who uh, initially got me interested in it. And, uh, and since we're both Italian, uh, we had a lot of things in common. And he, he had a lot to offer to everybody. And uh, without him, I, I wouldn't be where I am today, quite frankly. What was he like? Uh, a workhorse tireless worker. People think of Italians as being sort of, you know, domani and sort of here or there. He, it was a religion to this man. I mean, he, every note, every character, everything, I mean, he worked ceaselessly and tirelessly. And um, therefore, everything we did, as you know, was, was first class. And the amount of professional singers produced from the conservatory during his reign was was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Did you ever work with him in a, in a pianistic capacity? Was he still, sting, still singing some when you were here as a I, student? I, I accompanied him a few times. I did a couple of benefits for him as a pianist and accompanied him. He would do uh, uh, Leporello's Aria and Bartolo and things like that for, for local benefits. And I worked with him a bit, coaching him when he went back and did occasional things at the Met, like like Achindoro and Geronte uh, and things like that. So I had that experience with him, too, as well as uh, playing all the rehearsals of the CCM productions. 
He was, the only time I ever saw Maestro Tayo live was uh, one of his signature roles, the sacristan. Mm -hmm. What was he like as the sacristan in Tosca? Um, he took over the stage. I mean, <laughs> all the lead tenor, Cavaradossi's hated it because, as you know, in the first scene, Cavaradossi is up on the uh, scaffolding, the scaffolding <laughs> and the sacristan is down stage and towards the audience. And so Tayo, of course, there wasn't a scene he didn't like to steal. And so the tenor could be up there singing his aria, but Tayo was down there acting and singing his sacristan lines. I mean, very tasteful and very much... Uh, a true character uh, in terms of Italian opera and, of course, knowing the language so well. Um, but he would give such a convincing performance that, that the, the Cavaradossi had to fight for every inch of stage. He was married to a wonderful lady who survived him by many years, the wonderful Inelda Tayo. And as I'm recalling, Inelda tells the story that they actually met smoking a cigarette. right. Right. He was she was an actress. And actually, I talked to her first language actually was French. And then her family moved from France and to Italy. And they were doing a show together in which he was singing and she was an actress. So I don't I don't think it was an opera, but they were the only two in the cast who smoked. So they ended up going in the same dressing room. So I guess it was was love among the nicotine. <laughs> You talk a lot about this, uh, as it were, um, transformational experience of wanting to become more of an artist collaborator rather than as a soloist. And I'd love for you to share a couple of your thoughts about what it means to be a, a collaborative pianist. What are some of the things you do as a collaborative pianist that you don't do, let's say, in playing a Chopin waltz? Well, I think that the idea of being a collaborative pianist. Uh, they didn't call us that when I was in school, but it's an actually a very good word because you must collaborate in the fullest sense of the word. It's a real give and take. You, um, as, a, as a solo pianist, you're so involved in your own sphere, your own bubble, you know what I mean, in terms of practicing, in terms of you, in terms of your association. The only time as a solo pianist that you sort of get out of that little bubble is when you start playing concerti with orchestras and other ensembles, then you have to break out of that sphere. As a collaborative pianist, and especially dealing with opera singers, you have to uh, play the piano very well, you have to have a language facility, um, and you have to be a psychologist, because every singer you work with has a different sort of way of working. Some like to have the, the very forceful method and be told what to do. Other ones like to be coddled. Other ones like to uh, feel that they're discovering everything themselves when actually you've done it and all this stuff. So it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, you have to listen to what people say. There's some pianist and coach who say, no, this, this, and this. I believe in letting the singer um, tell me things or, or say, I feel this way and feel that way. Because a lot of... The singers, especially American singers, have great training. They have great musical instincts. And I think as a, as a collaborative pianist, you want to enable them to, how can I say this, uh, not be dependent upon you their whole lives. You want to build in that real feeling of independence. So when they go to other places, to other countries, um, to other conductors, that they can stand on their own two feet and say, I just wasn't 
an empty vessel that was filled. I was actually, you know, given things. And that's what I think collaboration is about. And I get things from them. I mean, in terms of I'm not a singer, as the chorus can readily tell you. I try, but, you know... You have the most wonderful toneless baritone. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but, you know, I've learned from them things about how the voice works, what they do technically. So when you're coaching, you know what is going on in terms of what they have to do to produce their sound and things like that. I mean, I know piano technique, but that collaboration has given me a lot of knowledge in terms of what they have to do, which is quite a lot. Growing up in an Italian-American household in Pittsburgh, uh, was there opera in the pasta water? Oh, yes, yes. My mother actually was quite a good singer. Um, she was a coloratura, and that's why I started playing the piano in the first place. I started playing by ear so I could I could accompany for her. Um, and uh, she was had thoughts of doing a musical career, but, you know, in those days she, she ended up having, having three boys, I was in a small town, and my father owned his own business, so those sort of aspirations were not as readily available to be fulfilled as they are today. So, But she always loved music and singing, and um, they were very encouraging to me, which I, I thank them for to this day. You know, They could have said, no, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, this, that, and blah, blah. But they said, no, do what you want to do. And were there opera recordings at home? Oh, too? yes, yes. I remember... Who were the household gods of opera? Um, I think people like Corelli and Tebaldi, the, the typical big, you know... Big lyrical spinto Italian voices. Right. But, but also, of course, in those, everyone knew Sills. Everyone knew Pavarotti. Um, Pittsburgh is, is so Italian that all the Italian opera singers were really revered and known by name and by personality. So that was quite encouraging to me, too. And I would listen to opera recordings. I can remember being next to the sink, my mother washing dishes, and I'd be in a playpen, and the opera recordings were playing. And I don't know whether I had a rattle or something, but I was conducting to the music. To the manner born. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so uh, you're at CCM. You are having this wonderful discovery of wanting to collaborate with singers. Right. And uh, you did spend a fair amount of time on the road, so to speak, with some pretty famous singers. Do you have a, a couple of tales from tales from the tarmac of uh, fun times or hilarious times with some of your artists? Well, perhaps the, my dear Martina Arroyo was uh, not only a great singer, but an incredibly wonderful human being and incredibly funny and with a joy for life. And um, traveling around with her... And her, her husband, Michel, uh, was always a trip. Um, you never knew what was going to happen. Um, and I'm trying to think, and her mother was wonderful too, but I remember being, she used to live on 69th and, uh, 69th and what was it? Um, Near the park, West End? No, it was East. Oh, so it was oh, around the, the East corner. Side. Lexington? Lex, Lexington. 69 and Lex, yes, <laughs> right around from the Italian embassy. And there were always famous singers dropping in on her, whether it was Grace Bumbry or Helen Donat or uh, other people like Joan Sutherland would call, you know. And so that was that was kind of a, a fun thing. And, and would, did you meet Martina Arroyo because of your work here in Cincinnati? Yes, actually, I was uh, playing rehearsals for the May Festival. And um, Martina 
and Mignon Dan, where the solo was for Elijah. And I played the rehearsals for them and coached them, um, as well as I used to play for the chorus, too. Um, and, you know, it was wonderful. Got to to know her and Mignon. And a, a couple months later, um, this is a funny story. I had a very good a friend who was a baritone in New York, and every time I went there, I would stay with him. And we always played jokes on each other, you know, prank phone calls and things like that. So one day I was visiting, and I wasn't there, and I came back to his apartment, and he was white as a ghost. And he was saying, oh, Henry, I, 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 I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I, I'm like, what's wrong? He said, well, when you were gone, there came a phone call, and it was a woman saying, this is Martina Arroyo. And I said, oh, sure. He thought it was one of one of his crazy friends playing a joke. Well, I would like, and I would like to engage him to play for me at the Bermuda Festival. And he's like, "Yeah, where next? The moon." And he said all these things. And so, oh, no. I guess she was taking quite a back. But fortunately, being the person that she was, she figured something strange was going on. So, <laughs> you know, I called her back up, and she was like. Who was that crazy man? I'm like, one of my best friends. She said, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should add that Martina is still, of course, very much among us. Oh, yes. With her wonderful foundation and the program she does every summer for, for young singers. Uh, she contributed fantastic anecdotes to our 90th anniversary celebrations. And I'm looking forward to asking her for some recollections when it comes time for our 100th anniversary fairly soon. It is soon. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Scary. <laughs> so um, I would almost say that you're an accidental chorus master uh, because it seems as though you almost fell into the role of, of coaching choruses. Am I right? I mean, was it something that it doesn't sound like it was something that you actually planned to do. It's just it happened. Well, I you know, it's really interesting to put my um it, it's different things in different in different companies. I think mm -hmm. that that people knew first of all my big advantage this is I didn't have to have another person. So if a company was looking for a course master, I could play for myself and I could do the languages. So immediately I could do everything. So it was like you know double mint gum two two in one. Um, and then with the Cincinnati Opera, I had always I had assisted for a while when there were other course masters and also played. So I was here, so I just do whatever, and then as as, as time went on, I sort of do, started doing the the chorus, um, totally for Cincinnati Opera. And then when I went to Opera Pacific, I played the shows and did chorus too. So it was sort of back and forth, a kind of a, a variation that that I liked. Well, one of the things that I do because I'm a history geek and beginning to dive deep, and as we prepare to celebrate our hundredth anniversary, is I look through the annals of our company compiled several years ago by Elder Thurstein. And I, uh, a couple of years ago when we were thinking, you, you know, Henry must have some sort of an important anniversary coming up. Um, I went through and I charted the various titles you had during your long... So you've been associated with Cincinnati Opera in one way or another with a couple of little gaps for more than four decades. Right, right. And so I began to, I began to look and say, well, let's say you were a a pianist, you were a coach accompanist, you were assistant chorus master, then you turn up again as an assistant conductor, and then finally chorus master. So I think you've done everything but wash the dishes at Cincinnati Opera, and you probably do that too. <laughs> right, by own two floors. So. <laughs> now, Henry, one of the things that I find fascinating about your work at Cincinnati Opera is, and I think it's something that our listeners would like to understand, 
you're not just the guy who takes an assembled chorus and rehearses them in preparation for their participation in the show. You actually also audition every single chorus member every year and make a chorus from scratch every year. Tell us what that process is like. Well, first of all, I think that being where we are, that I have uh, the sort of uh, available singers to me that um, are not everywhere. There's a wealth of vocal talent, especially from the conservatory, from Louisville, from all these places. So um, I'm actually quite anxious to hear how I can build the chorus. Um, and so we have the auditions, um, and I make notes and rate people, and you know we decide how many, of course, with with you, how many people we're going to use and things like that. But it's it's much more than having a good voice. It's trying to figure out how in each section things are going to work, and then putting four sections together so that we create enough sound, but also what is called a blend which is the idea that you're singing in a chorus and not a soloist, which has different requirements. And some people who may be very fine soloists are not appropriate for choral singing because their voices are so distinct uh, that they won't fit into the, the whole thing. So I'm, I'm listening to that. I'm listening for, of course, intonation and quality. And also, you've been at the auditions too, of course, with me all the time, to see if someone has that, that spark that intelligence, because um, as everyone knows, this this company you you hit the ground running. I mean, this course, especially this summer, it's been Bing, Bing, Bing. So you have to be musically strong, dramatically strong, and have that what I call the spirit, the stage spirit. So I look for all of these things in the auditions, um, and then after we do the initial things, comes the hard part, and it goes back and forth across the country because I'm in Phoenix the rest of the year, of people accepting, people dropping out, people coming back in, people wanting to miss rehearsals because of their dog's wedding and every excuse under the book. So it's sort of like stitching together a quilt or a jigsaw puzzle. And um, to me, it's very exciting. And then all of a sudden, there are a few surprises. There are every year that suddenly a couple of very wonderful people become available. So... Um, well, one of the things I love about watching you and talking with you during our audition process is I guess our listeners have to understand that we probably hear, let's say we need a chorus, let's say for one season, the largest size is 48. I think right. that's yeah, the chorus for, for, uh, for Another Brick in the Wall. And um, we probably hear close to 300 people. Right, right. Now, these people come to Cincinnati uh, or come to our um, facilities um, not just from the conservatory. Some of them are coming from as far away as New York and from right. California and so on and so forth. And the winnowing down process is, the, as you say, is, is a real challenge. But one of the things I find fascinating in auditions is um, what I may be looking for in hearing someone as having potential for a small role or right. a slightly larger role is different from what you're looking for, as you say, that blend, but also... I remember having conversations with you saying, you know, this voice may not be the prettiest voice, but it's got what I need for that section in terms of maturity and, and tonal color. So you're really in some ways like a painter. In other words, you've got your ground colors 
And then you're looking for those little shades of pink that will make that cheek stand out especially lovely or those lips be just a little bit more red or something like that. So you're not just looking for strong voices. You're looking for colors too, aren't you? Right, and some some voices that would never be considered major soloists, um, not because they're bad voices, but simply because they're what I, what I call blenders. <laughs> Their voices have a rounder quality, and they sort of, I compare it to making a cake, and these people are like the, the layers of icing between the layers of cake. So everything blends together. And uh, talking to other chorus masters, it's the same way. You need so many different types of voices to make a whole. And that's why when someone drops out of a section, you know, I always talk to whoever's doing administration here. You can't just replace someone with someone else. It's like, who was the specific person who dropped out? Because if so-and-so drops out, then I want this person, that person. So it becomes quite complicated, but but a lot of fun when you have so much material to work with. You know? Let's take a very typical big chorus opera, Carmen, which we do every seven or eight years or so. What are some of the baseline things you start thinking about as you're getting ready for our auditions in a season where we're going to produce Carmen? What are you, Henry Venanzi, chorus master for Cincinnati Opera, looking for? Um, well, I'm looking for someone in Carmen who has a musical background, intellect, because Carmen, of course, is done all the time, but it's a very difficult opera for the chorus. It's a lot of music, and it's a lot of words in French, which, of course, is a sort of bête noire language of American singers. I mean, Italian, fine, even German, but French, you know... Is, it's a language of diphthongs, isn't it? <laughs> right, and it's just, you know, and Bizet and all his works wrote a million words, so... I can tell from someone's audition, I want to hear them sing something in French, and they have to be in the ballpark somewhere, because we don't have time, as you know, to teach someone French, We're, you know, and with so much music to do, you know. Um, and then also, I think, and I guess I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm looking for certain uh, variances of physicality, because... Uh, I have cigarette girls, I have townspeople, I have soldiers, I have this and that. I've got to create not only a realistic sounding course, but a realistic looking course because, of course, you know, Carmen is really French verismo, so you can't, you know, the course has got to fit certain bills. Um, well, it's got to mirror real life. Right. And there are tall people and short people and slender people and larger people. And one of the things I love about our chorus every year, and we're fortunate, is that while we could always be more diverse, our chorus is pretty diverse. Oh, it's great. And yeah. we have we have uh, enough singers who have a maturity of voice that are in good shape and are in the community that they can add to the the youth and the exuberance of the younger singers. Even though they're great, I mean, in a major opera course, you need that 35-plus sound. I mean, as I said, I could have a chorus of 25 baritones and nothing would happen. You need the lower male voices and things like that. So in Carmen, um, are there particular famous choruses that are trickier than they sound? Um, I think that the third act chorus where they're, they're in the mountains, right? it's really, if you listen to it, it's probably the most forward-looking musically in terms of, of harmonies and finding the tones and things like that. It looks like nothing on the paper. It looks like 4-4 four, four with some dotted notes. But once you start working on it, and and actually put, putting the action to it, 
um, it's it's very difficult. I would not. I would say that nothing in Carmen is easy. So describe your rehearsal technique in general. I I mean I've attended countless chorus rehearsals and watched you in action, and. Um, what do you? Uh, how do you set the tone? What's your What's your mo in rehearsal? Well, I try to keep a sort of, uh, for want of a better word, a stand up comedy routine or whatever. It so, sure is. So they're learning in spite of learning. The minute you start getting very serious and very mean and things like that, you can just see it in their faces. I try to, you know, I'm I'm sort of like the the babysitter who gets the the child to eat his strained peas without him knowing it, you know. Or, um, because, I mean, I first established to them that I know what I'm talking about. Right. So I get the respect. They know that I play the piano. I know, they know that what the soloists are doing. I know every word of it. I give them a lot of literature uh, in terms of phonetics and also stories and things like that and show them that you have to be totally involved. And then we sort of do mechanics, um, which you need to do, the pitches, the phrasing, the breaths. Um, and then we just do, I do a lot of chanting the language in rhythm. Ha-ha, <laughs> without, without pitches. Without pitches, because if you get the correct cadence of the language, the accents and things like that, that's what the, con- that's what the composer was setting. He found notes for that, so you just overlay that so you're not doing twice as much work. You know what I mean? It's not, don't learn the pitches without the words, because then when you go put the words in, then it sounds like you don't know the language. If you speak the language with the correct accents and tones, just like in English, you know what I mean? American musical theater is, is that's what I consider opera. It's European American musical theater, which was maybe a strange way of looking at it, but it's what it was. Um, and then I like to work men and women's sections separately. separately. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, and uh, a, a lot of times, and it's just, I don't know why it is, the women tend to learn more quickly than the men. I know I'm probably stabbing myself in the heart by saying this, but it's true. Uh, men take a longer time to absorb things and or for it to come back to you. Women are like singing in like 19 parts usually. And men, you know, take a little more time. So by getting separate and then putting them together, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. And also then I can I can say things like, well, God, the women did that well, man. And I, and I set them against each other. So the male ego makes... Gets them in gear. War, works for me in that <laughs> case. Something else I find fascinating in rehearsal when you're working with a chorus, you're uh, you're working on something and you will then say, I don't know if the conductor is going to take this faster or slower, or I've done this show so many times, I know that sometimes the conductor will do this and some t- another conductor will do that. You're sort of a bridesmaid, as it were. Um, what's that all about? Because you're, you're giving the chorus... A basic foundation, but then it could be altered, right? Well, you know, I think that that a lot of these people in this course are going to be soloists in some way. And um, there are several ways to do something, a great piece, that are within the stylistic bounds. And I just want them to be aware of this may happen at this point, or this may happen, or this may happen. And I, I'm always saying to them, do I know? Because I don't. I said, just be ready for something. And here's probably the one, two, or three somethings are going to happen. You know, Jose may hold this, or he may sing this, or the conductor may want a breath here, or he may go a tempo. I just try to educate them to all the things that may happen with various conductors so it doesn't take them by surprise. And there are several ways to to interpret things. Um, 
and I think they should know about them. Now, in my time here, uh, the one opera I think we've done three times, I've been here 13 years, the one opera now I know we've done three times since I've arrived here is Traviata. So mm-hmm. we did it in one of my very first seasons. We did it again in 2012 and now just in the 2018 season. And you've had a different chorus mm-hmm. all three times. You've had a different conductor all right, three right. times. Different sets of soloists all three times. So you can't just say it's another Traviata. You have to approach it afresh every single time. How does an opera, how does a repertoire opera stay fresh for you? Well, I think that that the soloists, of course, bring new insights and new voices to it. The conductor uh, transmit his ideas. Certainly, Renato was quite different from from other other people. And being a native Italian, uh, without being prejudiced, there's a certain somatic in the sangue, you know, that he sees the music differently than someone else may see it, and that's exciting. And you know. Nora's Traviata was certainly different from Aileen's, and that's fascinating to me, that we can see how great music uh, lends itself to an almost endless kaleidoscope of interpretations, and that's what makes it exciting and fun for me. And the chorus reacts differently to the different soloists, you know, and so you see these different reactions that that happen in scenes, and um, one of the most fascinating things was was the... Uh, the depth of Nora's Traviata in terms of her character, which they responded to. I mean, she had the brilliant singing, but there was something about her that... that there was a vulnerability uh, and, a, and a, a, a really sort of almost Sarah Bernhardt quality of, of impending tragedy. She, you almost felt that she knew from the very moment her absolute end. Right, which is... which. I think at that a European soprano would be more philosophically aligned with than, than sort of the brighter American counterparts. They yeah, sort yeah. of, you know, play it differently, what yeah. it is to be a victim and this whole thing about fate and acceptance and things like that. And so the, so the chorus reacts to that in the way they do things. I mean, also, um, the thing that was different about this is that... Um, we had, fortunately, a lot of people in this course who had dance training or could move. And so I was very happy that, unlike other productions where we had a full corps de ballet, we just had a pas de deux couple. And my people... Um, Sang and danced. And danced. And they had the the enriching experience of working with a choreographer, which I think is very necessary for today's young opera singer to do that. Not that they're going to do Swan Lake, but, you know, that they... They know the dance language and what to do, and so it was. It was really a great experience for all of us to see. Oh, you know, you're not just a chorus in this; you're actually doing more things. So that brings me to a, a question I've I probably have asked you in auditions, or I've intuited from the way that you react to a particular singer. But um, what do you? What kind of advice would you give for a young singer uh, preparing to make an audition for a major company? What what are the do's and don'ts you are looking for, whether you're looking for a soloist or a chorister? What's some good advice for a young singer? Um, I think that the thing that I've been asked over and over again is, what should I begin with? They're doing such and such an opera and such and such an opera. And my answer is, I don't care what the opera is, what the language is, present 
what you sing the best. Because if the first thing is not that great, there may not be a second, right? If we hear the voice in, you know, if the opera's in French and you're singing beautifully in Italian, we're going to say, hmm, do you sing anything in French? Because we basically like the voice. So I would say that would be one thing. Sing what you sing the best. I don't care what language it is. Just do that. Um, and also, from the moment you walk in the door, the way you approach the piano and, and uh, talk to your, audition, your auditioners and things like that, there is a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I think the young sh singer should find that fine line and walk on it. <laughs> It's a bit of a tightrope, but it it's is. important. It is, but once you find it, you walk in before you've, you've sung a note, I go, oh, you can say this is going to be something. Before they open their mouth, you and I can say, oh, this person probably can sing very well because just because of the way they are, and it usually pans out. Have you had some nice surprises in auditions where someone may be, relatively speaking, let's say, unprepossessing in their walking into the room or their small conversation with the pianist, and then they open their mouth and it's like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, yes, I'm trying to think of there. There weren't any this, this season, but there always are those things or someone who is totally – I had one man who came in. He was a truck driver. He came in, I'll forget it. He had one of those caps on, you know, those those caps at the brim, and he had on a green nylon zip-up jacket and jeans, and he was sort of shuffling around. And we said, uh, what would you sing? He said, I'll, I'll sing the clown's song from from Palu pa whatever he said, Palucha or something like that. Uh, I said, fine. So I said, do you have music? I don't, I don't have music. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, would you like a pitch? I don't need a pitch. No, I'll be fine. So he sat there and looked at the floor and just came out with this most amazing voice, totally untrained, just, just you know, it was like total raw material. I mean, at his age, probably too late to do anything about it, but that is, you know, I call it God's little joke on the universe that, that this voice is not singing. Sort of like, what was her name, Suzanne Boyle, um, that's right. That uh, soprano in England. But it does happen. It does happen. Or they come in and there are these little bodies and these huge sounds come out and you go, you know. Well, I'm recalling one that you and I sat next to each other. Uh, this has got to be three, three, four years ago now. And a tall, unprepossessing high school kid came in the room. Oh, that's right. Yes. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pale as the dawn. And uh, announced himself uh, and said that he was a bass. And I think I asked him, how old you are? And he said, I think 16. And you and I looked at each other and said, okay, well, this is another charity audition. You know, someone's mom or someone's teacher put this kid up to it. And he opened his mouth and the most beautiful young, again, not yet completely trained, bass voice came out. And we just looked at each other as if to say, this kid's got to be in our course. I don't care if he's 12, you know. And now he's studying at Juilliard and right. his fourth summer in the chorus and he's developed as an actor. For me, those are the proud moments of our work together is that every once in a while you have to take a chance on someone. Well, yes, I mean, and, it, and the fact that this person had the wherewithal and the courage and the interest to come to this audition, he didn't have to do it. Mm -hmm. That shows me that this person has a, 
a drive or whatever. There was who was the tenor a few years ago? He's he's really rather well known. Brian Moore. Brian Moore. He came in and he had been through hell and high water and medical problems and this and that. And he opened his mouth and you were just like, oh. I started crying, actually. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and he's I now mean, on the beginnings of a really fine career. You know, a wonderful, a heartwarming local kid makes good story, right. for and, sure. And I usually start them in the course with one show because especially um, with high school boys of that age, they hear the older singers and they want to imitate. And that's the worst thing you can do. You know what I mean? I'm like, don't sing like them. Use your voice and then gradually work them into things. But, um, no, that's very re rewarding when you just see that that incredible. And those people, too, are not, I mean, uh, my base. Can I say his name? Sure. James Rootring. Mm -hmm. He is the nicest guy. The older choristers love him. He's fun, but he's all business. And he's th you can tell he's thrilled to be there every minute. Yeah, and, and, it, that, and that communicates to the audience as well. That's one of the things I love about our choristers is that so many of them, you get a palpable sense that they're so happy to be on stage. Well, they're proud of themselves. I mean, when you hear that chorus saying, especially Dutchman, I've gotten comments from all over the country from, I mean, Richard Better was here from Houston and wrote me especially to say, oh, my God, you know, and, and other people say. So they, there's a sense of pride that you say, I'm part of something that is really something. The life of a chorus master is uh, a multifaceted thing because I think a lot of people don't understand that you st also do a fair amount of conducting during the course of the season, but we never see you. Right. Because there are many operas that have of essential backstage choruses for effect, for uh, proportional, if it's part of the drama and whatnot. What are some of the tricks of the trade for conducting offstage? What are your What are your tools? Well, the hardest thing is getting the chorus to be where they're supposed to be. You mean physically? <laughs> physically. It's like, what did they say? It's like herding cats. Uh, they're never where they're supposed to be, and they're, they're called from the dressing room, and I've got to go down the hall, and you know, it's like, come on, come on. So that's the first thing. But then just to make sure that everything is set up so they're comfortable, everyone can see everyone, and do it in advance because singers need to settle a bit. They can't just get there and start singing. So I always make sure I have everything prepared, uh, space for people I know exactly to tell them where to go. My monitor is set. And then... Um, the trickiest thing is that, of course, since you're so far backstage, your sound is hitting the audience later. So you always have to be conducting ahead of him in the pit. And choristers get, when they're not used to it, they're going, well, why aren't you with him? You're ahead of him. I'm like, I have to be. So don't watch the monitor. Watch me because I'm trying to make this up. And it takes sometimes a couple of times to see, oh, that's how much I need to be because depending upon the set, and things like that is all a different situation. That's probably the most nerve-wracking thing that I do, getting that, that thing set. And you wonder how perverse opera composers were before the age of television because you work off of a television monitor where you see the conductor. We put a, a camera in the wall of the pit that is focused directly on the conductor's face and arms. And so you have the advantage of being able to see exactly what the maestro is doing. But in the days before television, what do you think your predecessor must have done? You know, one eye peered through a hole in the set and the other hand conducting or something? Probably. I think that that houses were a lot smaller. 
So you weren't that far from what was going on. And also, um, I think that the conductor in the pit had to adjust to the backstage music rather than the opposite way. Whatever he was given, he would have to sort of adjust. And also, the rehearsal periods were much longer. Sure. So by the time they got backstage, it was sort of like mostly the same. But I'm sure there were some quite strange occurrences. Speaking of strange occurrences, can you recall one or two either really hilarious or really, oh my gosh, experiences from your time here at Cincinnati Opera in your role? Um, there were so many things that were, were very were very funny. Um, I remember <laughs> I remember once when we had Renata Scotto. She appeared with us twice. She yes, sang she, Norma and Adriana, I think. Right, and I prompted her. That's another thing I've done, which is my least favorite job. Um, I prompted her, and she um, was a very unusual woman. She had to be treated a certain way, and um, she I mean, was a diva. She was a diva. I mean, fortunately, my trump quarters, I could speak to these people in Italian, which sort of got me in a little more of an inner circle. Was like you know, but I remember one time, the chorus ladies were off stage, and Scotto came, was she in a costume, and she had. She had um, lost some of her jewelry, and she came. She came off the stage, and she was going, "Oh, oh, I lost my earring! I lost my earring!" And one of the chorus girl goes, "Oh my God, she's deaf!" I'm like, "Not hearing, <laughs> earring." <laughs> so it was a little lost in translation. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> have you done? Have you done some diva whispering in your time, calming people down and getting them? You know, back on track, as it were, if they were having a, a rough day at the opera, a rough oh, day yes. at the office. I mean, I mean, there there is such a people don't realize there is such a lot that an opera singer has to concentrate on how they sound, how they look, worrying about the chorus, worrying about props, worrying about this and that. You know, I just that's that's what I, I like to do. I like to um, appear calm and confident in front of people and reassure them i mean even though that's that's part of leadership in this business you know is just calming people down because it's it's sort of like contagion if there's if there's nervousness and uncertainty at the top it sort of spreads like a disease through the entire ranks and uh if the if the principals are nervous it spreads to the chorus and everything like that so i've done um some things I used to do things. Tenors are worse than sopranos, though. They're more of a mess. I won't mention names. But, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but they are. They take a, a lot more calming down than sopranos. Mezzos are usually like, yeah, fine. They're they're very. They're the moms of the opera world. Exactly. Aren't they? They're sort yeah. of like mezzos. unflappable Me baritones and mezzos. Generally speaking, are the people you want to have on your side if the ship is going down. Right. And sopranos. They'll have snips and snits. They're usually more concerned about their wig or their wardrobe than their voice, some of them, that's how they look. Um, and some of them were just like Marcy, who was just there. She's like Mother Earth. She's like, fine, we'll do it. This is my job. I With a know. voice like a clarion angel. Oh, I mean, yeah. Just extraordinary. I call her an undramatic, dramatic soprano because there's no... <laughs> but the tenors are the ones who tend to get all... What I don't know what happens to them. They get all this, but the voice is, you know, it's it's a crazy voice that can do anything at any time. It's like horn players in the symphony. Yeah, they don't know what's going to happen. So I have, I have uh, infinite patience for tenors. Well, you know, I try to be understanding and, and a friend and things like that. Also, some tenors wait, sort of longest of any voice up to actually learn their music, 
I'm like, well, if you learned it sooner, you'd be less nervous. So let's look at this and let's do that and this and that. So, You've clearly had countless, countless operas. I mean, over a, a four-decade experience with us, you've probably done hundreds of operas. Oh, for... yeah, and some amazing ones that I would have never done had I not been associated with this company. What have been a couple of the particularly rewarding experiences for you that you, you know, you, you recall and you treasure of, of your, of your oh work God, with the company? there have been so many. Um... I mean, I know one of which I'm most extremely proud to have known you was our 2010 Meistersinger. That was amazing. That was really, really amazing. That's well, um, a huge chorus, too. Right, right. And the thing is, when the chorus has a lot to do, they're much happier than when they don't have a lot to do because, you know, they get a momentum going and things like that. Um, in thinking of things I've been especially proud of, um, I thought that uh, Nixon in China... Hugely complicated. ...was... Uh, was very rewarding for me and for the chorus. I think that um, that um, Electra and Zalome uh, in this house with the people we've had are tremendously rewarding because um, of just the pieces they are, you know. Um, and the ability in this house to do the grand operas, to do the Aidas, to do the, you know, there's nothing for me like a big chorus and cast and orchestra in that marvelous hall. Um, and um, Fidelio, I would say in recent history, Fidelio, that was amazing in all aspects. Well, that f the finale, well, you know, they're, they're the two major choral moments, of course, which is the Prisoner's Chorus in Act One, and then this finale, which is sort of like the Ninth Symphony finale on steroids. It's, it's shorter than the finale to the Ninth Symphony, but my gosh, what a, what a load of joyful emotion. And correct me if I'm wrong, Henry, Beethoven isn't easy to sing, is it? It's not grateful on the voice. No, I mean, both the Ninth Symphony and this are written in the break, as we call it, in the sort of the, the upper middle for the tenor and soprano, where you've got to be very careful and it's harder to sing there. And both the tenor and the soprano, it hammers, hammers over and over again there. And so it isn't, it isn't easy to sing. And it's usually very declamatory. You know, interspersed. He wants you to scream your God's out for like 40 measures. Then comes this pianissimo soft thing, which, of course, is more difficult to do. But it's exciting and very rewarding. I mean, and we were fortunate that we had, in my opinion, one of the best men's choruses I've ever worked with. Just it was, everything fell into place. So do you think that uh, year on year, because obviously we announce our repertoire before we have our auditions. Do you think sometimes that when potential... If, Singers who are potentially wanting to work with the chorus take a look at what we're doing and say, I can't miss this opportunity to sing Fidelio sure. or Meistersinger or whatnot. So repertoire does have a tendency to draw uh, a particularly strong group of choristers. From time I would to think time. so. And a lot of times if the, if the chorister doesn't know the opera, the announcing of what's happening, uh, the ones who really are serious will go and find uh -huh. uh, a CD or... You know, or listen to it online. Listen to it online and say, oh... Oh, my God, I had no idea, you know, because they're students and they may know certain operas, but, you know, um, it's an experience for them to be part of something or to say, I'm going to be around French grand opera, a style that I've never experienced and would like to incorporate in case I become a solo singer. Uh -huh. So it gives them the opportunity to see what will be going on during the summer. Um, so, yeah, I think they do look at the repertoire very closely. 
Next to our chief executive, Patty Beggs, and our uh, director of community relations, Tracy Wilson, you trump them all. You've worked with the company for longer than anybody who's here now. And you've seen four plus decades of life in Cincinnati. You're not a full-time resident. You're here with us for auditions in the, summer, in, the, in the fall and winter, and you come back during the summer. But you've established deep, deep connections in the community over your decades here. How do you think the city has changed in the time that you have worked for us? Uh, the biggest thing for me is how the... The downtown has changed, especially up around the music hall area. I was, uh, before I was with the opera here, actually was the pianist for the symphony. And I remember I would come down from Clifton on the bus, and I would get off the bus, and I would run from Vine Street several blocks, hoping to make it to the stage door in one piece. Wow. When it was really rough here. And now you go out, and it's an amazing transformation, both in terms of of uh, the beauty of the area, uh, the the types of people who have moved in, the the nightlife, the restaurants, things like that. Uh, that has been a great joy to see happen because people said it would never happen. There was a time when, you know, you thought this area was going to stay like this all the time. And you can remember Washington Park isn't the Washington Park it is now. It used to be, we used to call it Needle Park. <laughs> it's a very dangerous neighborhood. Oh, yes. Point. You know, and even now, you know... Um, with this whole arts corridor being established from Central Parkway up to Music Hall, I mean, I'm just dazzled by what has happened. It's become a real sort of arts colony and a sort of um, something in the Midwest that's very unusual. When other cities are sort of decaying, we are, are building and sustaining. So, and, um, so you have heard the former music hall, and now you've had a chance to work in the renovated music hall. What are a couple of things that you like about the hall post-renovation? I think that uh, the sound in the hall is wonderful. A lot of renovations tend to go in the opposite direction. It's the great fear, of course. So I was afraid, but, you know, fortunately that has not happened. The sound is just as good. Um, That's one thing that I find interesting. Also, I think that the rehearsal facilities, the ease of getting around the building is is nicer, especially we have large groups of people to get them from one space to another. Um, the renovations of letting more light in mm. with the windows is beautiful. And the, the, the discovery of the, the Corbett, that room, the Corbett Tower is an entirely different room. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. The, the, the restoration of the, of the ceiling and the stenciling from the 19th century is jaw-dropping. Right. And also even up in the gallery, which is an amazing place to be. Yeah. Um, the way that the seats are more amphitheatered and, and can't, I think they're better, they're more comfortable the, the it's site. less scary up there too. In other right. words, it's not as vertiginous as it once was. Oh, it, I mean, if you had a little a little problem with heights of vertigo, you needed to be you know. have oxygen up there with you too. That's well, I remember. <laughs> I remember one one. It was before something. I don't know whether you were here yet or not, but I went to conduct the Star Spangled Banner, and I was about to do it, and someone from the pit, one of the stage people, said, "No, no, no, don't do it." And apparently, someone was trying to get down the stairs, and because of the steep pitch, they had fallen. <gasps> hit their head and they were lying there and because it was so steep they had to slide a stretcher down oh, put this person on it and then so it was like this big thing so it was really kind of a uh, 
perilous thing. I mean, I would freak out. I wouldn't get too close to the railing. It was like yeah, a little know. too high. But little. now it's much more uh, usable and and user friendly. And it all looks so fresh and clean and and you know it's the wonderful. beautiful combination of old and new and old made new again. Right. Yeah. I don't know if there's anywhere else in the United States quite like it. No. It's it, a treasure, you know. So. We ask all of our guests the same set of questions uh, as we come to the end. Yes. None of them is particularly embarrassing, and some of them are a little silly, but it gives us a sense of continuity. Okay. What did you have for breakfast today? What did I have for breakfast? I had a veggie burger, which is uh, made with principally pea protein and beets and things like that. I like it because it tastes like a hamburger, and but it's all protein and things like that, and some eggs and uh, a few little artichoke hearts. Oh, very, very, very yes. sophisticated. I, I just try to... I'm not a breakfast eater. So if I don't eat that, I'm going to grab a Danish <laughs> or several sweet things the way we used to do in Italy. And as the, the years progress, we've got to watch our weight. <laughs> um, what books or magazines are you reading these days? I am reading a very fascinating book, and this will make me seem like a total nerd. It's called The Prototype Indo-European Language, which is an 800-page book, page book that this man has done tireless research on, claiming that all the languages we speak today were at one point one language that sort of spread from uh, the cradle, the Euphrates, whatever, into different places. And he goes into Gothic that became German. He goes into... Um, all sorts of things, Norse, this and that, and it's exhaustive tables and all this stuff. And it, it's just fascinating to me. I've always been interested in languages, so I'm reading that. Do you watch much television? And if so, is there a show you like in particular? Um, I sort of like uh, Two Broke Girls. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I think the writing is brilliant. I think the characters are wonderful. I like TV shows where, where the two star characters are not eclipsed, but are supported by all these wonderful types. So of, more of an ensemble show. It's an ensemble show, you know. Right. Um, and I watch uh, certain things on PBS I like. Um, I do admit, too, when I'm having a glass of wine and waiting for dinner, I will watch Wheel of Fortune. And if, feeling especially intellectual, I'll go on to watch Jeopardy. You and my mother would make great TV bedfellows because those are her two favorite television programs. Yeah. I'm not saying 94. I win. But... <laughs> Do you? Um, um, I'm, I, I know you have an iPhone or at least a, a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. Is there an app you find particularly helpful either in your work or just life in general that you use most often on your phone? I think that the the Google Directions thing because I'm left-handed and I think that crossed my wires in my brain. I'm from right-handed parents so my sense of direction does not exist. The only time I knew where I was was in Southern California when I just had to remember ocean mountains. <laughs> Otherwise, it's a lifesaver. I just let them talk and I do what they tell me. With your long experience in Cincinnati, uh, is there a restaurant or a couple of restaurants that you find to this day go-tos or new places that you've discovered that you like a lot? Um, I really uh, have found a whole slew of new places. It's, it's been fun this summer just walking over to Vine Street and hearing what different choristers have to say or, or principals or things and just trying 
new things. Um, there's a place that um, I've gone to for a long time. Um, it's out in, in Marymont or Marymont. Called the Exchequer. Have you ever heard of I've that? I've heard of the Exchequer. Yes, it's it's just a wonderful place to get away from it all. And they have um, this wonderful. They make this Hungarian sour cream mushroom soup. That's their trademark. And every time I get to Cincinnati, I go, Oh, I've got to have that. <laughs> so. um, what's some of the best career advice you ever received? Um, I think the best career advice I've ever received is do what you really want to do. Don't weigh the pros and cons too much. Um, I know some people make decisions best based upon finances or um, other things like responsibilities to family and things like that. But I sort of go back to what someone said that you've got to make yourself happy before you can make others happy. Maybe that's new age or whatever, but I think it's very true. Because um, you can ask the chorus, when I'm not happy, <laughs> they're not happy. <laughs> Just kidding. No, but it's true. Just follow your dream. Uh, and I think that um, regret is something you can never do anything about. And that goes for your life and your career. So if you can get to the end of both and say, I've made mistakes, but I don't regret anything, that would be my my career advice, whether it's music or family things or every everything else, just do what your gut tells you, what you really want to do. And most of the time, things work out. It has for me quite well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say. Um, I know you are so devoted to classical music, opera in particular, but do you have a performer uh, outside of classical music whom you like particularly? Uh, yes, I really like Lady Gaga. What an amazing musician. She's Italian now. No. Oh, yes. She's of Italian descent, of course. No wonder you like her. Hey, all my people are in this business. <laughs> no, she is Italian. I just think that um, she's an experimenter. I mean, and then when she did that Sound of Music thing, she showed us that she could have classical chops. I think... Um, very from, impressive musician. She's very impressive, and she's a personality. Mm -hmm. And she's also not a diva, really. She's very in tune with the world and other things, people, and, and she's very spiritual. So I, I like her music. In fact, during the chorus warm-up, I sort of play a few of her songs while they're getting ready to to warm up. And, of course, everyone knows it. They go, oh, oh, yeah. So, I mean, she is You well continue to surprise me, Henry Venanzi. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with stress? Stress? Um... Well, I mean, I think that exercise for me is good. I mean, the, the, the why here is wonderful. If I go jogging for an hour or so, it's, it's just like magically things melt away or things get put in perspective. Um, I have some friends that I'll talk to and, you know, we all tend to make things so much more serious and in this business, day by day things happen. I mean, you just have to step back and just take a time out for a while. And, and remember that it's only opera. Well, you know, and it should be, the minute it starts being a torment, why do it? I mean, everything has its pros and cons. You just have to look past the, the now to the bigger picture. And I'm not saying it's easy to do. You know, there have been times when I haven't done it. And, you know, I fortunately... Um, 
maybe I'm vain. I just don't want to destroy myself with with drinking too much or smoking or anything like that. I just don't think that gets you anywhere. And I have several friends who I've seen I've seen great talents go down the drain because of that sort of weakness. So I think that uh, you can deal with stress. There are ways of coping. If you need professional counseling, then do that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there shouldn't be a stigma. We're in, we're in an, an era of tolerance and liberation for everything. It should be that same way with with stress. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have it. And if you don't say you have it, you're lying, which is like <laughs> the worst way of dealing with stress is to deny it. Deny it. Yes, exactly. You've spoken during our time together of lots of people who have been important in your development. If you had to put one person perhaps slightly above the others, is there a mentor whose either memory or whose words or help to you has stuck with you and you are sort of your lodestar? I would say it was Italo Tayo. I mean, he was um, so encouraging to me, so helpful to me. Um, it was like having a resident Italian grandfather <laughs> because I lost my grandfather and uh, we weren't very close. So here was a man who was, you know, I was always at their house. Inel and I were close. And, and uh, she made the best limoncello on oh the planet. Oh, my God. She made the best everything. Yeah. What a cook. Um, what a person. But he was, you know, he told me the truth when things were, weren't so good or I needed to do this, I needed to do that. And um, just to see... A living example of a true devoted artist and human being side by side day after day wanted me to make sort of that impression to people in this business. Hopefully I've succeeded most of the time. I've had my moments, but um, no, he, he's always with me as he is with a, a very good friend of mine, Tom Hammonds. We came through that program together and he sort of sculpted us day by day. And uh, of course, we know Tom has had a marvelous Continues to have a wonderful career. Exactly. So, you know, he was not for me, but for dozens and dozens and dozens of people from Tom Fox to Barbara Daniels to all these people, um, the shining star. And, you know, he's in my heart forever. So, Thank you, Henry. Thank you so much for taking some time to share with us. We could spend hours times 10 talking about the wonderful career you've had thus far with Cincinnati Opera. We are truly lucky to count you among us. So, Thank you, Henry. Oh, thank you. I feel very, very blessed to to be able to work with this group of people and to constantly have a chorus and repertoire and situation that it, that inspires and fulfills me. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Marajas. <laughs>